0: The Guardian. Carbs, bad for me. Should I avoid white bread and pasta How and switch many to brown? pieces of fruit and veg a day is meat a handful of almonds every day really boost my Will overall health. Will eating salt health? increase my blood pressure? Should broccoli really boost my immune system? Can I reduce period pains by eating ginger, salmon and steak? Will drinking tea and red wine lower my risk of Alzheimer's? How much turmeric do I actually need to gain its supposed benefits? Should I have it in a smoothie or take a tablet? And why is there so much complicated and seemingly contradictory advice when it comes to our diets?
1: There isn't a simple answer about why we're getting it all wrong other than there's been a vacuum of good information and that nutrition science is seen as the sort of the poor cousin of all the other sciences.
0: I'm Madeleine Finlay, a journalist and producer, and this is Science Weekly. For many of us, the coronavirus pandemic has put a renewed focus on our health and the role our diets play in keeping us well. COVID-19 has had a disproportionate effect on those with obesity, who are at a higher risk of suffering more severe effects. Here in the UK, the government recently unveiled a new obesity strategy encouraging adults to eat better, drink less alcohol and get active. The strategy includes a ban on TV and online adverts before 9pm for foods that are high in fat, sugar and salt, and calories displayed on menus to help people make healthier choices when eating out.
1: The worst thing to me is the fact that you can actually use calories in daily life to measure them out properly. And even the most experienced nutritionist dietitians can't accurately measure calories for more than a a day or so without going mad.
0: With such a slew of advice out there, from health professionals all the way to social media influencers, it can be hard to know what the right choices are. Here on Science Weekly we wanted to find out why is grappling with food and health nutrition so challenging and what does the science actually say about what and what not to eat?
1: My name is Tim Spector. I'm Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London and I am also the lead investigator of uh, the Covid Symptom Study app and author of a new book called Spoonfed.
0: Tim, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of complicated and mixed messaging when it comes to what we need in our diets and what healthy eating really looks like. Your new book, Spoonfed, is investigating some of our beliefs around food and why much of what we're told, to put it kindly, is misleading. Why do we need a book on this at this moment in time? I mean, why are we still getting this wrong?
1: It's a very good question. Um, and there isn't a simple answer about why we're getting it all wrong, other than there's been a vacuum of good information for decades, really, put to- patch up the fact we're not spending enough money on research in this area and that nutrition science is seen as the sort of the poor cousin of all the other sciences, uh, spending only a trivial fraction of what we spend on developing drugs uh, into looking at the effects of food. So there's this lack of really good information coming through. We've got the same time successive government groups and Public Health England peddling guidelines that are out of date and factually incorrect, that people have started uh, not to believe. We've got the food industry, which has got massive over the last 30 years and with budgets bigger than half the countries in the world, to spend on advertising and also influencing research and governments through lobbying. All of these factors combining on us to distort really what's going on so that most people are more than ever unclear what to eat.
0: One of the studies you've done recently, Tim, has revealed that almost a third of people who were surveyed about their eating habits over lockdown reported gaining weight, with one of the contributing factors likely to be increased snacking. And snacking has both a good and a bad reputation. Often we're told that we shouldn't be snacking, and certainly not on things like crisps and biscuits. And yet at the same time, there is this notion that we should be eating lots of small meals or healthy snacks during the day, rather than having three bigger meals. So what is the evidence around the frequency and size of our meals? Is the small and often mantra useful advice?
1: I think it's rubbish advice. It was based on some study about 30 years ago that uh, your metabolic blood levels were better. It was called grazing rather than gorging at the time, that we should all be like, cows, slowly munching grass, we know that the longer you leave between meals, the healthier you are. And there's this whole new movement in nutrition called restricted time eating, which tells us that when you eat the same foods, you you compress the time you're eating it so you have a longer time overnight, ideally 14 hours overnight, where your body's not processing food, you actually have a better metabolism, feel better and lose weight. And so that is totally counter to this uh, grazing all the time idea, which, of course, the food companies either pushed the agenda or they absolutely leapt on it. And so, you know, that's in a way ingrained in our new British food culture where you've got to have a snack. You can't possibly have a a cup of tea or a a coffee without something to go with it. And whilst you're on the way to to the bus, you've got to be having something little Johnny going to school's got to have uh, some snacks. This is all you know, modern marketing invention with, with some pseudoscience added to it.
0: Whilst people are thinking about losing weight and getting healthy post-lockdown, the main focus of losing weight is often counting calories. So I wondered if you could explain to me what exactly is a calorie and what's wrong with counting them?
1: A calorie is simply a unit of energy that gets released when you burn a certain amount of that food and it's measured in how quickly water around that food heats up. And so that's been in standard use for over 100 years, but it's been vastly overused and given a precision that it totally lacks. Every food... When you, you burn it in these machines, will uh, you'll be able to measure how many calories it gives off. And we've assumed that amount works the same when we use our bodies like a furnace, if you like, to, to get rid of it. And the various assumptions are that the calories you put in your body equal the calories uh, that you that come out the other end, therefore, If you exercise more and eat less, you'll get thinner. It turns out it's never as simple as that. Uh, The calories in, calories out idea doesn't work at a practical level because the two are correlated and if you eat less calories, your body slows down its metabolism and will compensate. Similarly, all calories are supposed to be equal in this old fashioned idea. And we now know that simply isn't true. And part of that is the way that food is cooked. If you have chickpeas eaten raw, chickpeas steamed or mashed in hummus, you had a completely different amount of calories produced in your body with what should be the same. Um, so the whole theory is has been vastly oversimplified. But the worst thing to me is the fact that you can actually use calories in daily life to measure them out properly. And even most experienced nutritionists, dieticians can't accurately measure calories you know, for more than a, a day or so without going mad, because you have to weigh it all and make precise calculations. They're just impossible. And packets, uh, when you go to a supermarket, the calorie label really has is about plus or minus 20%, which if you think of... 20% of your calories in a day is quite a lot. And it gets even worse if you go to estimates in restaurants and cafes where they can vary about 50%, basically because of slight differences in portions. So you simply can't measure them properly. Uh, and everybody has a different metabolic rate. So the amount at rest that you your energy burns is very different. And that is really hard to measure. If you think calories are hard on the way in, we really haven't worked out a really accurate way of uh, measuring the output.
0: I want to dig in a little bit into one of the points you made there about us all being different. What do we know about how people vary in how their bodies process different foods and what kind of diets might actually work for them?
1: All this stuff is very new. So, three years ago, we put together the world's largest personalised nutrition study. We started with a thousand UK twins and a hundred individuals in the US We gave them all identical meals in clinic controlled situations and were taking blood from them. And then gave them apps and wearables and asked them to log all their foods for the next two weeks. The first thing we noticed about this, this is the PREDICT study which we published in Nature Medicine a few weeks ago. When we looked at their metabolic profiles, what happened to the blood after eating the identical muffin and milkshake? There was an eightfold difference between people. Virtually no two individuals were the same for their sugar profile, their fat profile, and their inflammation profile. And this really hit home because all the previous research has been looking only at averages you know, everything's all about the average. This is the average person who's this average person. They never looked actually at the individuals. And it's been a blind spot for, you know, the last century. And I think this was the, the first time that there's been shown to this extent. And we also show having twins, we showed that even identical twins were non-identical in their response to food. So even if you had the identical genes in every cell in your body, you, your, your body was still reacting differently to that identical muffin or that identical milkshake. And that really was a sort of aha moment for us. Because we said, well, wow, what's, you know, what's making us all so different? And why didn't we know about this before? And that explains why people aren't going to be copycats and do exactly as their sister did or their neighbor or friend or some celebrity. So everyone's got to find their own path uh, to to find the the diet that suits them. And that's that's the sort of step of the science that we're pursuing.
0: That's really interesting, the fact that twins had this vastly different reaction to foods. Do you have any sense of what might be causing this difference in how they reacted to what they were eating?
1: It seems to be that one of the main factors is the gut microbiome. This is the community of 100 trillion microbes that live in all of our guts. And uh, we only share around 30% of the species with each other and um, hardly any of the strains, which is the subtype of the species. So we all have a unique uh, gut community. And these guys are like chemical factories, which means that if they're different, they're going to produce slightly different chemicals when they encounter food and the signals they send to your brain and to your immune system. So we think that's one of the major sources of these differences between us. But there are also pointers that there are other things as well. Um, People will vary in their circadian clocks. And so some people will metabolize their food better at breakfast than they will at lunch. Uh, On some people, the opposite. Some people respond to exercise by uh, metabolizing faster, others slower. Sleep can have different effects on people as well. So many things about not only what we eat but how we eat uh, seem to be uh, coming together to to give us this amazing uniqueness.
0: Despite this incredible complexity in how somebody might react to food, there's one point in your new book where you actually seem to agree with the current advice, which was on ultra-processed foods and the fact that they're bad for us. So what exactly is an ultra-processed food and what effect can they have on our health?
1: Basically, they're foods that are composites of products that have already been pre-processed and there's usually over 10 different ingredients. So you wouldn't be able to make them yourself. Examples would be you take wheat and you um, pump it through high-pressure cookers, you melt it, maybe freeze it a few times and then it comes out of some mix that you can put into a breakfast cereal bar uh, with 20 other ingredients to give it the right sort of feel on the palate, but it it, it in no way resembles wheat. Increasingly, we are eating more and more of these because manufacturers are very good at making them tasty, getting that right blend of sugars and fats in them with these artificial flavorings that they, they add that give it tickle something in our primeval brains that uh, made say it's very hard to not finish the pack. They're really hardly been studied by the nutrition community at all, which is interesting. That shows maybe the power of the big food lobby um, in preventing that kind of investigation. But there was one done last year in America, and they compared two diets virtually identical, one just using ultra-processed foods and the other real foods. The group on the ultra-processed diet, they always felt hungrier. They were always eating more. And they also have effects on our gut microbes um, because of these extra chemicals and usually a lack of fibre because by the time it's gone into the factory, it's all the original natural goodness of those plants has been stripped away. And so uh, it's just easily digestible, rapidly absorbed into the bloodstream type foods.
0: You've given us a few pieces of advice throughout. Try and avoid ultra-processed foods. There's no scientific evidence behind grazing and that we need to figure out what works best for us and our own bodies. But... Based on the best scientific evidence that you've found, what should our diets look like?
1: Our diets should be mainly plant-based. That doesn't mean you can't have uh, meat and fish, but just uh, don't have them perhaps every day. And it's not always having the same kale salad every day. It's about diversity. So studies have shown that we've done that to get the most diverse gut microbes, which gives you the greatest health and flexibility around 30 types of plant a week is what you should be aiming at and that includes things like nuts and seeds and herbs having fermented foods regularly we think that's just a way of getting natural probiotics into the body and doing some fasting i think either experimenting yourself about skipping breakfast probably good at least once a, a week and avoiding the too much of the ultra processed stuff and you can't go far wrong it's about, you know, throwing away some of those old ideas. It's it's about, you know, pretty much disregarding calories, not looking at those labels, looking at the quality behind it. If you start to realise that we're all unique, try to experiment with your diet to say within those broad guidelines, you know, what works best for you. Is it to have your your meals early in the morning, you know, or are you an evening person? Yeah, you know, There are exciting things happening in the UK, there's lots of artisan foods being made uh, but we've got to support them and we've got to you know, fight back against the industry that's taken such a, a huge hold uh, of this country. Well,
0: Tim, that has been absolutely fascinating. And just before you go, as you mentioned at the start of the podcast, you're also the lead investigator of the COVID Symptom Study app, which is being used to track COVID infections across the UK and learn more about the virus. So do tell our listeners where they can find the app.
1: The COVID Symptom Study app can be downloaded on the website covid.joinzoe, J-O-I-N. ZOE.com, or it's available on Android and Apple. We'd love for you to download it. You can log for your family, particularly kids at this, this moment as well. That'd be great.
0: Thanks again to Tim. We put a link to his book, Spoonfed, and to the COVID symptoms study app on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. Our sister podcast, Today in Focus, has done an excellent episode on the food industry the complex role of economic inequality and the prevalence of junk food in the UK's obesity crisis, which I heartily recommend listening to. You can also find a link to that on the Science Weekly podcast webpage. And as always, do keep sending us your questions on the science behind the outbreak by filling in the form found at theguardian.com forward slash COVID-19 questions, all one word. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. The Guardian.